Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I'd like to welcome you to Crosswinds. If you're new, it's great to have you. Across both of our campuses, we are studying our way through the book of 1 Timothy. And today, we are in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Actually, we began 1 Timothy chapter 3 last week. That chapter began by looking at the qualifications for elders in the church. And as we just continue our way through 1 Timothy chapter 3, it starts now talking about the qualifications for deacons in the church. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, man, I lost an hour of sleep, and now we have to talk about church government? I mean, how are you going to keep me awake? Well, here's the deal, you know. Just as it's important for our high school seniors to take a government class so they can learn to be responsible citizens in our nation, it's also important for each one of us to study church government. And so we learned how God designs His church to be structured so we can be responsible members in His church as His people. So this is actually going to be a good study. It's a little detailed, it's a little, it's a little bit deeper, but it's okay. We'll have some fun. I'll try and make this fun as we work our way through. So let me be, before I jump into actually looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the qualifications of deacons, because deacons is something we really haven't talked about from the pulpit here, I don't think like ever, uh, it's probably appropriate for me to give you some background on deacons in the scriptures themselves and what this office is about and why we're going to study it. So here we go. Deacon literally just means to serve in Greek. That's all it means. In fact, to deacon originally meant to be a waiter. That's the way you can think of it. You go to a restaurant and you have a waiter that would serve you. And the scriptures are clear that as Christians, we are to serve one another. That in a general sense, we're all to be deaconish to one another, serving each other in our time of need. But as you start to put your finger in the scriptures, what you find in the early church is there starts to become the development of an office of deacons. People in the church that become very dedicated just to serving particular needs in the church and serving others in the church. It actually first shows up in Acts chapter 6. It's not called deacons there. I would call these proto-deacons. But here's the way it all begins. The early church ran a soup kitchen. See, soup kitchens go way back. And what it was is they took care of feeding uh, widows. They didn't have husbands. They were too old to work. So the church came around and fed them. But what happened was there was being an inequitable distribution of food from the church soup kitchen. The Greek widows were getting real skinny because they weren't being given enough food, while the Hebrew widows were getting fat and happy because they were given more than enough food. And somebody blew the whistle, Foul, not fair, we got to fix this. And when you use a problem like that in the church, where does it immediately go to? Like the top, right? Who's in charge? Who's in charge in the early church? The apostles. So people come to the apostles and say, you need to fix the church soup kitchen. You need to get out spreadsheets. You need to get out numbers. You need to count how many scoops of corn mash are on each woman's plate to make sure we're doing, th doing things fairly and doing things equitably. Now, this is true. 
things need to be done fairly. It need to be done equitably. But the apostles are sort of smart. They're like, you know, this is a good thing to do, but we're not the right people to do this. Because God has given us the mission of preaching. He's given us the mission of praying and teaching. And we need to devote ourselves to that task. If we're counting scoops of grits and putting the numbers on a spreadsheet all day long in the church soup kitchen, we're not going to be able to preach and pray. So what they decide to do is they decide to take seven men of great reputable standing and they appoint them over top of the church soup kitchen so the apostles can get back to the main task that God has given them to do. These seven men are sort of like the first occurrence of an office in the church dedicated to managing the serving in the church and dedicated to serving others in the church. And that's the way they function. Now, what I found is you start to trace your finger through the Scripture. You find an interesting development of the way churches grow and expand. Let me give it to you this way. First of all, an apostle, such as the Apostle Paul, comes into a community that doesn't have a church. Uh, they pray, they preach, they call people to trust in Jesus, and all of a sudden, a little nucleus of the church begins. Then what happens, is after that starts to grow, um, Paul, or an apostle, what he would do, even if he had to go back to that community, he would appoint elders to manage that growing church and provide spiritual leadership in that church. In fact, if you look up Acts chapter 14, verse 23, you'll see that Paul goes back to the places that the churches were planted to establish elders in the church. So there's leadership. But then what happens is the church continues to grow. The elders are overburdened with the management of church execution plus the management of people needs. And the elders at that point then appoint deacons to take care of the needs. So what happens is elders are supposed to try and maintain a vertical focus on prayer and teaching of the words. And deacons are designed to maintain a primarily horizontal focus, trying to make sure, that, make sure the operations of the church take place, plus caring for the people needs of the church, caring for the poor in the church, caring for and managing things like the soup kitchen in the church. Now this is very, very important that churches have deacons, or at least people that function in deacon-type roles. Because if a church doesn't have these kind of people, what happens is the elders and the pastors burn out. Because they're doing everything. Not only that, but when it comes to preaching and teaching, they don't do their job nearly as well as they should be doing it, because they're busy doing everything else, managing the busyness of the church. So deacons, or people that function at least in a deacon-type role of managing operations and managing people, are extremely important for the health and vitality of a church body. So pastors and elders can dedicate themselves to the ministry of the Word. Now, Really, the idea of deacon doesn't come up too many times in Scripture. It comes up primarily in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that we're about ready to look at. Uh, it also comes up in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the question may come to your mind, 
why doesn't it come up frequently in Scripture? And here's why. It was not an early church development. It was a later church development. In fact, as churches grew, like I mentioned, they found the need to create deacons and deaconesses to, to manage things. Remember, 1 Timothy that we're studying is one of the last letters Paul writes towards the end of his life when the church of Ephesus is large and it's well-established. That's why deacons have to be there. And the same thing goes on with Philippians. It's a bigger church that needs deacons. Now, we're going to spend our time in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but I'd like to begin by just briefly reading Philippians chapter 1, which is the other occurrence of deacons, because in here we got a little snapshot on how the church in Philippi was structured. It begins this way. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Here's the structure. On the top, you have the overseers or the elders, which we learned last week are just synonymous terms. They're focused on things vertically. Then you have the deacons, which are focused on things horizontally, taking care of practical needs and people needs. But you notice there's a third group in there. The members of the church in Philippi. They are working with the deacons, and they're working under the deacons, not apart from the deacons. So you sort of have three groups of people, elders, deacons, and members who are all working together to do the ministry of the church. Now, here at Crosswinds, I just want to tell you right up front that we do not have an official title of the office of deacon in our church government structure. Uh, we have people that function in deacon-type roles. Uh, for instance, the head usher is a type of a deacon. He has members of the church that work for him and that work with him, but he takes care of the practical management of the operations of ushering in the church. A, uh, somebody who would manage our property or a grounds manager would be a type of a deacon, and he would have people of the church working with him, and he would be managing over them. So we don't have this title in our church governance structure at this time, though I will tell you that as elders, we are committed to having a discussion after we've studied through 1 Timothy to see if there are things we can learn from it that we may want to bring to bear in our, any future governance structures we put forward for the church body. So that's where we're sort of at. Now, let me just give you the way this structures itself together. It's actually a real simple outline for this morning. The first few verses are going to focus on the qualities that deacons need to possess in general. Then there's a, another verse that will focus on the quality that women need to possess if they're to function as a deacon or deaconess. Then there's a verse that focuses on the specific qualities that a men must possess if they're going to function in this capacity. And then lastly, it'll come back and say, oh, by the way, if you're a deacon, there's a huge and great reward for you, and it describes it. So a prize at the end of the, end of the line here. So let's jump in. I'm going to try and work through these and add some humor and some practical insight as we go our way through. So here we go. What are the general qualities of deacons that they all must possess? Number one, deacons must be worthy of respect. It says deacons likewise must be dignified. Dignified means worthy of respect. It means someone I admire, someone I look up to you. 
Do you have any people like that in the church where you say, you know what, I really like them. I like the way they lead their family. I like the way they lead their home. I want to walk in their steps. When I grow up, I want to be like them. Men, do you have other men in this church that you look up to? Say, I really like the way that guy treats his wife. He's always honoring her. I love the way he gently yet effectively manages his children. I love the way that on Thursday morning when he comes to the men's Bible study, he always has his Bible with him and he always has something good to say. I admire him. That's the kind of guy you want to put in the position of deacon, somebody that you admire. Ladies, are there women around this church that you admire? You look at how they, they mother their children. You say, you know what, I hope I can do a good job like she does when it comes to caring for her kids. I, li- I like the way that she is so caring towards her husband. He feels so supported through her. And she's so gentle, so easy to talk to. I admire her. That is the kind of woman you want to put in the capacity of a deacon. It's very important, and one of the essential qualities here is that they're a man or a woman that is admired or looked up to for their faith and their life in the church. In fact, the Scriptures tell us this import- the importance of this example. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. It says, Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life, and notice this, and imitate their faith. Look at the way they live, and look at the way they walk with Christ, and follow them. So, if you have a person who is not frequently attending the church, or you have a person who's often too busy to help other people in the church, or a person who doesn't go out of their way to care for the needs of others in the church, guess what? Don't you dare appoint them as a deacon because their way of life is not worthy of following. Second general quality is this. Deacons cannot be two-faced. Yep, that's one of Batman's arch enemies, Two-Face. Deacons cannot be two-faced either. And by the way, I have the Scripture wrong here, and it should be actually, deacons should not be double-tongued. I copied the wrong one down. It was too late at night when I did this. But here's the point. Deacons are, cannot be people who practice something called Midwestern nice. Do you know what that is? where people smile at you. Oh, it's so good to see you. How are you? How are your family? It's so nice to see you. And then after I say amen at the end of the service, they go out those doors faster than a bullet comes out of a rifle. They don't really want to talk to you. They don't really want to care about you because quite honestly, they could give a rip about you. But when they talk to you in the hall, they do Midwestern nice. Let's be so nice and so plasticky. So the truth is, they look one way on the outside, but they're totally different on the inside. That is not the kind of person you want to have as a deacon. Let me tell you what it's like. The person you want to have as a deacon is when you talk to them in the hallway and you say, yeah, I'm going through a really hard time in life right now. Uh, This is where I'm struggling. All of a sudden you notice that they get real focused on you. 
They don't take their eyes off you. In fact, they don't even blink. They listen with complete and full attentiveness. And after you keep talking to them a while, you're like, you got to stop looking at me. You're freaking me out, man. They're like, well, I'm just listening because I care about you. And then after you finish telling your story to them, they don't automatically switch the subject to talk about themselves, but they start asking more questions. They want to know more about you. Not only do they ask questions, but then they actually start inconveniencing themselves to go out of their way to help you and to attend for your needs because all of a sudden you realize they genuinely care. They genuinely help. They don't just say they're interested on the outside, but they're really not on the inside. They say they're interested and they genuinely are. Those are the kind of people you want to put in the office of a deacon, somebody who's not two-faced, but genuinely cares. Number three, deacons cannot be regular drinkers. That's what it says, not addicted to much wine. You're not allowed to have drunk deacons around the church. That's the way it works. Now, what does this mean? I told you last week, guys, that I just abstain from alcohol. Not saying the scriptures say that every single person has to abstain, but I'm going to tell you, I've chosen to completely abstain. Why did, you, why did I choose to abstain? Well, there's a variety of reasons, but one of it is I have never heard somebody say to me, I am so thankful I drink, it has made my life so much better. I'm so thankful I drink because I have been such a better husband to my wife. So thankful I have a scotch and a vodka when I come home from work because it's made me a better father to my children. I mean, you never hear that. All you hear is, oh, man, I wish I wasn't addicted to this stuff. It is destroying my life. So I figured, well, see, he agrees with me. So I just figured, hey, I'm just going to abstain. That's the way it works. But here, Paul does not say that deacons should completely abstain. They should just not drink much wine. So why does Paul say this? Variety of reasons. First thing you need to know is that alcohol in the ancient world was very different from alcohol in the modern world today. Today, you know, it takes just a couple beers and you're starting to get sloshed because the proof is pretty high, even in beer. But in the ancient world, when it talks about wine, you need to understand that the proof of wine was very low. I mean, you had to seriously float your back teeth if you were going to end up being drunk on wine. You had to drink a lot. And here's what happened. In the ancient world, they didn't have a purified water source. I mean, you turn on your water at the tap, you've got fluoride for your teeth in there, you have chlorine to kill all the microbes. We take for granted how good and clean our water supply is. But if you have been on a mission trip to overseas, which doesn't have a clean water supply, you know if you drink the water, you end up getting sick. So what they would do is they would take grape juice, let it slightly ferment, and the small amount of alcohol would kill anything in it, and they would be able to drink it safely. In fact, the common practice in the ancient world was that you would even mix wine and water together, so the alcohol in the wine would then kill the microbes in the water. And you'd ration out your wine so you could drink more water that way. That's why he says you shouldn't, you shouldn't be drinking much wine, but he doesn't pull wine completely off the list. In fact, we'll see in a little bit later in 1 Timothy, Paul's going to tell Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach so you don't get sick. 
But here's the other point, is why you cannot be a person who drinks much wine at all. It's very practical. The honest truth is that most people who drink find themselves self-medicating to deal with stress through the bottle. Isn't that true? This is the way we often say it. I need to have a drink so I can drown my sorrows. Go through stress, come home and have a beer. Here's the problem. If you are a deacon and you're dealing with people, you're helping them with their needs, and they're talking about the divorce they're on the edge of, and they're talking about things are falling apart in their home, and you are getting all of the hatred and all the pain and all the junk of people's lives being put into your life, you're going to be one drunk deacon really fast. Because if you need alcohol to self-medicate to get through your sorrow, Imagine if you take your sorrow plus everybody else's sorrow into your life. Drunk deacon big time. So that's why you cannot drink much wine. The fourth qualification. Deacons cannot be using people for money. He says here, deacons cannot be greedy for dishonest gain. Now, by the way, I want you to notice, he didn't say that a deacon cannot make an honest gain. Yes, it's appropriate for deacons to make money. It's appropriate for any of us to make money and to provide good services. But he's saying here, you do not use your church family as a way to leverage relationships for shady gain. This means that when you're off at the coffee bar, you don't want to be that kind of person that's trying to sell 10 acres of a Brazilian rainforest to your friend in the Crosswind University class. I'll sell you the 10 acres cheap. I really will. And what it is, it's somebody trying to make money off of you. Use their church relationships for their financial gain. Like, what are you going to do with 10 acres of Brazilian rainforest? It also means that you have to be not a person that's committed to being involved in a pyramid scheme. You know what house pyramid schemes work? You're supposed to use your relationships to sell stuff to other people. This is why we do not have a deacon of Advocare at Crosswinds. Some of you understand what Advocare is. The rest of you just looked at me totally blank. Okay, Advocare is like a pyramid scheme where you start to sell vitamins and things like that to other people. Now, I am not against Advocare. That's fine. It's good. It's a good product, whatever. But here's the deal. If you're a deacon and you are helping people as they're going through their battles with alcohol, you are helping people as they're going through difficulty in their home and you're helping them through job loss and you're getting all kinds of good bondage and close relationships and they respect you. And then when they're all done with their crisis, you turn around and say to them, hey, do you want to buy $500 worth of vitamins out of the back of my Geo Metro? It like doesn't go over well because all of a sudden they think that you're just building a relationship with them to use them. You can't be a person who's committed to dishonest gain and be a deacon. Another thing, let me just flip on the other way around. By the way, there's nothing wrong with doing, people, doing business with people in the church. And it's good to do business with people in the church. I, I've thought about this for a little bit. I'll give you my thoughts. Here's the deal. Um, if you have a business and it's a good business and a reputable business, I would rather do business with you in the church 
than with somebody outside the church. I want my money that I'm using for something to go into your pocket, honestly. But here's where it gets a little dicey. When you're in the church, what often happens is, if you're in Crossman's University class with somebody or your life with somebody, say it's a plumber. You need a plumber. You call the church plumber. The church plumber comes in, and you expect, because you know them from church, that they owe you like at least a 50% discount. Well, come on. We've prayed together. I mean, we studied the Scriptures together. You're going to give me a good deal, right? You see what's happening? You're using your church relationship for dishonest gain in your pocket. Here's the way I think it should go. You do business with people in the church. And then what you do is you expect to pay full price. You do. And you pay full price joyfully because you know that your money is going to bless a brother or sister in Christ in your own church family. Now, if that person insists on giving you a discount, that's different. But you don't expect a discount. Because if you expect a discount, you soon become known as tightwad deacon. Because they'll remember you for always trying to get a financial edge rather than for loving and serving and caring for others. Next thing. Deacons must hold the faith and live with a clear conscience. He says in verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. By the way, this is the key difference between elders and deacons. Elders have to be able to teach the faith. Deacons just need to be able to hold to the mystery of the faith. In other words, deacons are only asked to have basic Christian competence. They don't have to be necessarily teachers. Why is it important that a deacon who serves in this capacity, even though they're working primarily just with people, that they have some basic competence in the Scriptures. Here's why. You never know when you're going to need to give an answer about Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 6, we talked about the seven men who were appointed to relieve the elders and to oversee the church soup kitchen. One of those seven men was a man named Stephen. You go one chapter later, Acts chapter 7, Stephen's finding himself about ready to get martyred. And before he dies, he gives one of the longest, most eloquent, most excellent speeches and sermons in the entire book of Acts. And yet he's not an elder. He was a deacon. But he could do that because he had the basic competence of the faith. Let me give it to you in a real common, ordinary way. Uh, Kevin Martin, he's our head usher. And so he works with the members of the church, and he organizes them to do the ushering. Well, what happens if somebody comes in to Kevin and says, Hey, you know, um, this past weekend I went out with some of my friends, and I saw the movie The Shack. And in The Shack, it said that God was like a black woman who was in the shack in the woods. And I'm trying to think about it. Should I be thinking about God as a black woman in the shack in the woods? Is that right or wrong? And Kevin, because he's got some basic scriptural confidence, he's reading the scriptures every day, he's going to go, hmm. If I remember this correctly, I remember we're supposed to play to our Father who art in heaven, not our mother who is in the shack. 
And, and so he can like steer them in the right direction, you know, because he's got some basic competence in the scriptures. That's why deacons need to have that. Number six, deacons should be tested before they are appointed. Let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The idea is when you're a deacon and you're dealing with practical, tactical matters or people matters in the church, you don't just throw somebody into that position and hope they can swim. You don't say, okay, by the way, we need somebody to take care of the church finances. Here's the church checkbook. Here's the church books. I hope you can make heads or tails of it. You mentor them. You work with them. You bring them alongside you. And you see if they have the competence necessary in this area. Same thing when it comes to people needs. You don't say, oh, by the way, here's a couple. They're about ready to get divorced. Go for it. You can save their marriage. You bring them along with you. You work with them. You help them. You disciple them and mentor them to help them be successful and to see if they have the necessary competence. But you're not just looking for competence when you're testing deacons. Maybe even more importantly is you're looking for character. See, the only way you can know about someone's real character is if you serve alongside them and you serve with them over a long period of time. And then all of a sudden you get to know what its life is really like in their family. You get to know with what they're really struggling with. You see them in times of stress and you understand if they really have the spiritual maturity necessary or not. So that's why you always test people who are deacons before you appoint people to being a deacon. So you can know their competence and develop that and you can know their character. All right. Now we get to the controversial part of the sermon. This is where it gets interesting. We're going to look at the essential qualities for women who would serve as deaconesses. And why is this such a debatable point? Here's what you need to understand. If you look at the ESV translation, which is the translation we use in our pews, you will see this next verse says this, that their wives likewise must be dignified. And it's saying that the, this next verse is just referring to the wives of the male elder or male deacons. But here's where it gets interesting. If you look at the NIV, which is also a good translation, it says something different. It says the women should also be dignified. So the ESV says we're just talking about the wives of the male deacons, but the NIV says we're talking about women in general who can serve in the office of deacons. Which one is it? Let me walk you through how I've thought about this. First of all, you look at this grammatically. And does this lean one way or the other? Actually, the Greek term here could be translated either wives or women. It can go either way. It, it's not distinguishable that way. So if you cannot determine what the meaning is grammatically, I've always told you to try and determine the meaning contextually. 
In other words, what does it mean in its context? And read around the verse. And here's where it gets interesting. This very same word is used a few verses earlier. In fact, it's used backly back in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And it's used to describe how women should dress. Remember when we studied this? It said women should dress modestly back in chapter 2. That could be also be translated wives should dress modestly. But clearly, clearly, it's not talking about just wives, saying that only wives should dress modestly and all the single Christian girls get to wear a miniskirt and stiletto high heels. No. This is saying that women in general that are Christians, all of them should dress modestly. And so I think that this is very clearly saying that women in general, since it's the exact same word used just a few verses later, women in general is what's being talked about here. In addition, I don't believe this has to be an either-or. I believe that Paul used what I would call intentional grammatical ambiguity. Because isn't it true that when husbands get involved as deacons, serving people and helping people in need, don't you think their wives come alongside and help right along with them? Isn't that going to be true? But isn't it true also that if men are in the position of being elders, so they can't be deacons, that maybe their wife is gifted to serve and to care? So while a man is in the position of an elder, his wife could also be in the position of a deaconess. Makes sense. So I think it can be both of these. Not, it doesn't have to be one or the other of these. Now we get sort of fun. Let's look at the qualities of a woman who would be to be in this area. Number one, a deaconess must be worthy of respect. Their wives, or as the NIV would say, women must be dignified. In other words, you have to have women in this position that other people look up to. The woman you want is the woman that when you go home, you hope your daughter grows up to be like her. If you say, I hope my daughter doesn't end up anything like her, you don't want her as a deacon, or deaconess, excuse me. You want her to have somebody you can model up to. Number two, a deaconess must be able to control her mouth. It says a woman should not, or a deaconess should not be a slanderer. Now let me just be honest on this. Some women are very good at sinning in the area of their mouth. I'm not saying that men don't sin in this area. I'm just saying that some women are particularly good at sinning in this area. They say whatever they are thinking. There is no filter in place whatsoever. And they try to justify it. Many times they say, well, I have to talk because I am an external processor. Or they say, you know, I have to share these things with my friends groups on Facebook because these are all valid prayer requests. No, they are not valid prayer requests. What they are is they are um, griping, they are nagging, they are whining, they are gossip, they are sin. All I am saying is the text says this, if you are a woman who does not have the ability to bridle your tongue, you should not serve as a deaconess. 
This includes not just face-to-face and verbally, but this includes social media. Because if you've been around social media for a while, you know that some women are very good at saying some of the nastiest things on Facebook to other people in a very convoluted, angled way. Can't be that way and be a deaconess. You just can't. Now, why is it so important to be able to bridle your tongue? Here's the deal. If you're serving as a deaconess, let's face it, people are going to dump all of their garbage on you. They're going to talk about all the problems they're having with their kids. They're going to talk about all the problems they're having with their family and their relatives and all of their pain and all of the ugliness in their life. And if you cannot bridle your tongue and you start gossiping about it with your friends and you start posting about it on social media, you will not help them. You will devastate them because you cannot bridle your tongue. If that's you, don't serve as a deaconess. It's all he's saying. Number three. Deaconesses cannot be on an emotional roller coaster. He says here, you need to be sober-minded. Now, some women are much more emotional than others. I'm not saying it's a right or a wrong issue. I'm just stating a fact. You know, someday they have their happy day, and 12 hours later they have their sad day. And then a few hours later it's back up to a happy day again. It's like riding a roller coaster just to be with them. And then what happens is when they get the ups and downs of their own life, then they're like really all over the place. Now, here's the deal. If you're a deaconess and you're not just dealing with your emotional issues, but now you're taking on a whole bunch of other people's emotional issues, your roller coaster will come off the tracks. That's true. So if you cannot be a woman who's able to maintain some kind of level of normal and steady, you should not be a deaconess, really. Now, I'm not being hard on it. I'm just being honest. Like, if you do not like the sight of blood, don't be a surgeon. Right, doctor? Well, if you cannot keep your emotional roller coaster on the tracks, don't be a deaconess. Same thing. All right. Number four. A deaconess must be faithful in all things. It says faithful in all things. What this means is if you're a woman who's going to serve as a deaconess and take care of people's needs, you have to be able to not just take care of their needs, but you still have to be able to take care of your own family's needs. I've seen this with people, women who serve as deaconesses. They become so consumed with the crisis in somebody else's life, they create a crisis in their own life. You know, the kids come home and there's no meals. I'm like, where's mom? I don't know. She's over that house again making dinner for that family. You know, and what's the laundry? Can you guys find any pants? Oh, they're in there. It's up to my shoulders now. Nobody's been doing laundry. She's over that house doing their laundry. It's like, no, if you cannot multitask and take care of your own family, then don't try and help somebody else's family at the same time. You have to be able to do all these things. Let's flip to the back side. What are the essential qualities of men who serve as deacons? Here it is, number one. And by the way, this was the number one for last week when I talked to the men about elders as well. Deacons must be a one-woman man. Let deacons, it says, each be the husband of one wife. Why women oftentimes have a particular proclivity to sin with their mouth, 
men have a particular proclivity to sin with their sexuality and not keeping their eyes on their wife and her alone. They are more interested in saying, well, I have my wife at home, but there's this other woman at work, this other woman at work that I'm connecting with really well and I really like to talk with over lunch. Or they like to look at another woman and let her beauty start to weave itself into the fabric of their mind. And the Scriptures would say, if that's you, you're that kind of guy, don't serve as a deacon. Whatever you do, don't serve that way. The Scriptures literally say, when it says here, the husband of one wife, the Greek is very clear. It means a one-woman man. It's not referring necessarily to the number of times you've been married. It's referring to the heart of the person. You have eyes for your wife and her alone. Last week, I gave you three practical helps in this area. I'm going to give you just one practical help this morning to help with that. Here's what often happens in a man's mind. You say, well, I know, God, what you said I need to do. I need to be a one-woman man. I need to make sure that all I am thinking about and the only woman I am enjoying is my wife. That's boring. Okay, that's, I know what I need to do to honor you. But on the other side, you have this idea, so I know what would make me happy. What would make me happy is enjoying talking to this other woman at work. What would make me happy would be looking at other women online. That would make me happy. So the choice is between being boring and honoring God and being happy. And if that's the way you frame it, guys, you're going to lose every time. But see, that's framed wrong. It's not a choice of being boring and honorable to God or being happy. Look what Moses said here in Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and turning, holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days. Moses' point is this. Guys... If you are a one-woman man, that is the path of happiness. That is the path of life. That is the path to length of your days. And if you are not a one-woman man, that is not the path to happiness. That is the path to ruin. That is the path to misery. That is the path to destruction when you allow your mind to start to weave other women into the fabric of your psyche besides the one woman you married. Understand that, guys. You need to understand a one-woman man is always the path to the greatest life you could ever have. Number two, a deacon a man deacon must especially manage his household well. Managing their children and household well, it says. The idea is you find out how a man will manage in the position of leadership in the church by looking at how he is managing in the position of leadership in his home. And oftentimes what happens is the great sin of men is to do what? Be passive to not provide leadership in the home. And if you're a man who can't provide leadership in the home, 
and you won't be able to provide leadership in the church. How do you find out if someone's deacon material? Look at how they manage their family. Now let's look at this great reward. This is the last part here. Deacons who serve well, it says, gain a great reward. Emphasize great reward. Look at this. He says, for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Those are the two parts of the reward. Number one, they gain a good standing for themselves. What this means is if you function as a deacon, somebody who's committed to caring for the needs of others, praying with them as they go through hard times, walking along with them and helping them and aiding them, you know what? Over time, you become that person's hero. They look back and they say, I remember when my marriage was difficult and you were there for me. I remember when things were hard at home with my kids and you brought a meal over for me. All of a sudden, you have all these people in the church that look up to that man or that woman who's committed themselves to serving you and to serving others. You're deeply loved in the church family. The other thing that it says here, you, have great, you also gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And I can just tell you what this means. When you function deaconing and serving people, what you find is you are on the bleeding edge of where God is working. You find yourselves praying with people who desperately need God to show up in their situation. And He does. And you were there. You were a part of it. And you experienced it. If your faith right now is boring and nothing is exciting is happening, and you have never seen really God do miraculous things in people's life, you want to know how to change that? Serve as a deacon, or serve in the capacity of a deacon, where you're serving other people on the front lines of ministry, and you'll be there, and you'll watch God show up, and greatly encouraged in your faith. Let me just read this last verse as we end here about the great hero we have, the greatest deacon of all named Jesus. It says, not, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Or literally in Greek it says your deacon. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Dear Jesus, we look at the model of your life that you came to serve of us. You served us greatly and deeply by literally giving your life to save us from your sins, from our sins. Jesus, I pray that you would help us, whether it's in the official capacity of a job of a deacon or just in our attitude as Christians, that we would be people deeply committed to serving one another to being there with others in their time of need. Even if it's hard, even if it's sacrificial, just like you served us and you saved us in our time of need as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. 
and may God continue to enrich your life.